Well, good morning. I bring my greetings from Ford Baptist Church, and a, uh, they want me to make it very clear that I'm not here to preach for a call. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just here to help. Right, let me just uh, get this up a little higher. There we go. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, it's been uh, a privilege to be friends with, uh, with Brad and Tyler and, and Mike uh, McNeil as well for 15 years, and to know Sarah a little bit in that time as well. Um, also, my, my other claim to fame in this church is that Jason Locke is my second cousin. Yeah, so uh, uh, I met him at something a little while ago, and I said, I think we're related, and we figured out how, how, that, how that worked. Um, so I'm really glad to be here with you today, and I've been told that if I don't open in prayer, Danny won't know how to queue up the PowerPoint, so I've, I'm going to do that also because prayer is, is a good thing to do. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just thank you for being together with your people this morning. Thank you for, for Grace Fellowship, Don Mills, and how you are at work in this church, how you uh, uh, have your hand has guided them through this tough season and through many years before that. And we pray that you would just bless this morning as we look into your word together, as we look at uh, your purpose in our lives, which is sometimes hard. And we just pray for, uh, for me, Lord, that you would uh, help me to speak your word well. Lord, that anything that I say that is from you and helpful, Lord, would be would penetrate uh, to people's hearts through your Holy Spirit. Anything that's not good, useless, wrong, Lord, that we'd forget it. <laughs> and I pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last month, we celebrated my oldest daughter, MJ's fourth birthday. She was so excited to be turning four to have a birthday party. And what really got her most excited was a few days before her birthday, uh, her Aunt Katie came over and brought her some balloons. Now, Becky and I got her balloons too, but they were not like these balloons. Ours were all different colors, and we blew them up with our breath. These were some of the most beautiful balloons I've ever seen in my life. They were helium-filled. There were six of them. Three of them were clear with like a rose gold confetti inside. The other three were just the right shade of pink to complement the rose gold. And uh, my daughter is a very girly girl, and she loved these balloons. And then Katie left, and MJ took them, and she pulled down, like just like a couple minutes later, pulled down on the ribbon and let go, and it gently bumped against the ceiling. Pop! And one of them popped. And she was, as you would imagine, a four-year-old, almost four-year-old being very upset. She was crying. But I, I talked her down. Listen, MJ, you still have five balloons. They're still awesome. It's okay. And she was like, okay, you're right, Daddy. And she grabbed the ribbon and pulled down again and let go, and it gently bumped against the ceiling. Pop! And another one. And she... <laughs> fell apart. I, I, my, my daughter is a very dramatic child. I have literally never seen her that sad before. She ran away and threw herself down and wept and, and yelled at the heavens, why is this happening? <laughs> Parents, have you ever had a moment when you simultaneously feel really bad for your kids and you're also trying not to laugh at them? <laughs> That's where I was. She was so sad and ridiculously over the top in the way she was responding to this. But you know, having kids teaches you a lot about yourself, right? You see in them a miniature version of who you are, the way that we respond to things. We don't like it when bad things happen. We don't like it when we suffer. We want to do everything we can to avoid suffering. And when we suffer, we don't only just grieve, we question We struggle to understand it. It boggles our minds that bad things should happen to us. We don't feel like we deserve it. It's not fair. 
It makes us angry, right? We sometimes we question God's goodness. We demand answers from him. Why would God let this happen? Why wouldn't he heal me? Why would this happen? Don't I deserve to be happy? What am I supposed to do now? It's a very human perspective on suffering, isn't it? Well, the passage that we're looking at today that James read for us a moment ago is going to give us a different perspective on suffering. This perspective is actually woven throughout the Bible, and we're going to see it playing out in the life of the Apostle Paul in this passage. Here's the perspective that we're going to see. Sometimes it will be God's will for you to suffer. Suffering doesn't happen because God's not powerful enough to stop it. Suffering doesn't happen because he's forgotten about you. It happens because it's God's will. Now, you guys are a church that cares about the sovereignty of God. I know you well enough to know that. And it's easy to say those things when things are going well. But when life's falling apart, that's a massive pill to swallow. That's difficult to really believe. So we're going to explore this truth in this passage that sometimes it's God's will for us to suffer. We need to think about two things. First of all, what should our perspective be on suffering? And second of all, what's the purpose of suffering? Our perspective on suffering and the purpose of suffering. So first we're going to see what our perspective on suffering should be. And we're going to see from this passage that, that passage that our perspective on suffering should be, be ready. We need to be prepared for suffering to come. We need to be ready. So this passage today, I apologize to James, is basically just a travelogue with all those names that no one wants to get up and have to read in front of a church. What we're, what we're seeing here is Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey in the book of Acts. If you were to flip back a couple of chapters, you'd see that Paul has been traveling through uh, Macedonia, which is now called Northern Greece, and Achaia, which we call Southern Greece today. He's been visiting churches that he helped plant and establish, and he's visiting them and strengthening them, but he's also gathering an offering to bring back to Jerusalem because there's Christians there that need financial support. Chapter 20, uh, he goes and he's in what's now now Turkey. Uh, Back then it was called Asia Minor. He visits the elders in Ephesus, And our passage in chapter 21 picks up with him and his companions tearing themselves away from this emotional meeting that he's had with these elders in Ephesus. And they're going to continue their journey. They're hopping between islands along the coast of Turkey before they get on a larger ship that cuts across the sea past the island of Cyprus to Tyre and Phoenicia. So they're in sort of modern-day Lebanon, north of Israel, if you can picture the map in your head. In Tyre, in Lebanon, they they wait a week before they can find a ship that will continue southward to Jerusalem. And so they they stay with some local Christians there while they're there. They they search them out. So if you look at Acts 21, look at the second half of verse 3 with me. It says, They landed in Tyre, uh, for there was a ship, there the ship was to unload its cargo. Verse 4 says, Having sought out disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, we need to pause there and think about this, right? While they're staying with these Christians, it says that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. These Christians from Tyre, they're warning, they're begging Paul not to continue his journey, right? If you've read Acts, you know from the rest of the story of Acts that Jerusalem's a really dangerous place for Paul. 
Wherever Paul has gone has ended up being dangerous because he won't shut up about Jesus. He tells people the story of Jesus. He, he tells them they need to repent from their sins and turn to Jesus. And the pagan people who worship false gods don't like that. And they've caused riots and driven them out of town. The Jewish people who, who worship the God of the Old Testament but don't believe that Jesus is his son, they also don't like it. They've had him thrown in jail. They've, they've beaten him. He's been stoned. He's been mocked. He's been ridiculed. He's been in danger wherever he's gone, Right? But Jerusalem, as the capital of the Jewish world, where Paul is known and recognized, is particularly dangerous. He's hated there. He used to work there with the Jewish people trying to persecute Christians. So if he goes there, it's a safe bet that he will be arrested or killed. But these Christians aren't just urging Paul not to go there because they know this. Our passage says that they're urging him through the Spirit. Which is to say, in some way, they're being led by the Holy Spirit. Probably also, even in this instance, they've received some kind of vision or revelation from the Holy Spirit. Now, if that was the case, if someone legitimately had a vision from the Holy Spirit and urged you not to do something, you would assume that your response should be to listen to them and not do that thing. Except for one thing. Paul himself was also being led by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Look back at chapter 20. So he's, he's, in the previous chapter, he's speaking to these elders from Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter 20, verse 22, he says this. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in, that in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul's con- compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem where he's sure he'll face prison and hardship. But at the same time, Christians are urging him through the Spirit not to go so he can avoid those hardships. Well, what's going on here? Did the Holy Spirit change his mind? So as you heard, I have three small children. Hannah, our second, uh, is two years old, and she's our most stubborn. She's our middle child. It makes sense. Um, you know, you go into being a parent thinking, my kids are just going to obey me, right? And it's going to be, you know, I'm not going to be like those other parents. I'm, they're going to obey me, right? Hannah, I, we can get food into her mouth, but we cannot force her to chew it or swallow it. She just decides she's not going to sometimes. And I've had meals where we sat down like, Hannah, you're going to eat all of this today. And by the end of it, she's like, just, just do one more and we'll call it even. Like, I just, I changed my mind. Whatever we can get into you, you'll survive. You're pretty chubby. Just, just <laughs> obey me, right? God's not like us. Right? We can't wear him down. He doesn't change his mind and think better of what he decided. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, both say that God is not a human being, that he should change his mind. He's not like us. What he says will happen, will happen. So then how do we explain this? What's going on with the Holy Spirit and these Christians and Paul in this passage? Well, it'll become a little bit clearer as we continue. So let's put a pin in that question, consider that question, and we'll come back to it in a minute. So Paul's in Tyre for a week, and after a week, he and his traveling companions get on the boat, and they travel south. The Christians from Tyre pray with them on the beach. They hop down the coast to a place called Ptolemais. They stay a day with the Christians there, and they continue south along the coast of Caesarea. When they get to Caesarea, they meet up with a Christian that if you've read Acts, you know has been had an important role in the story earlier on. Look at the second half of verse 8. Acts 21, verse, or sorry, 22, verse 8. Wait, I turned the page and I lost where I am. Hang on. <laughs> I'm not the only one who's done that today, so it's okay. Okay, 
22 verse 8. 21 verse 8. On the next day we departed and came to, uh, to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, Philip was one of the first uh, deacons of the church. We saw them back in uh, whatever your theology on deacons is, proto-deacons or deacon or whatever. But he's one of those seven people that was chosen, along with Stephen, to serve the Greek widows uh, in, in Jerusalem. And when one of his fellow deacons, Stephen, was stoned to death by the Jewish people, and a great persecution broke out against the Christians, Philip fled, along with many other Christians, from Jerusalem. And he traveled around sharing the gospel in amazing ways to Samaritans, to the Ethiopian eunuch, to other people. The last time we saw him was in Acts chapter 8, verse 40. He'd reached Caesarea, and apparently he settled down there as a family. He's got four daughters who are probably teenagers at this time uh, because of what it says about them being unmarried or virgin. Uh, and they had the gift of prophecy. And now, 20-ish years later, the man who started that persecution is staying in his house. It's pretty crazy, right? Like what God does in people's lives. But look what happens next. Verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down to Judea. Now, we met Agabus before in in Acts as well. Chapter 11, he came to uh, the church in Antioch. He gave a a, a prophecy that there was going to be a great famine coming to the Roman Empire. But now in this chapter, Agabus comes back again. And, And he has another message for the church in Caesarea. Verse 11 says, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So he says, the Holy Spirit says this. Paul, who owns this belt, he's going to be arrested and bound. He's going to end up in the hands of the Romans. Now, there's another warning about Jerusalem, but notice what he does not say here. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit says that, therefore, you must not go to Jerusalem. He just tells them what's going to happen when he gets there. And then in verse 12, it says, When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So do you see what's happened here? Two different things have happened here. The Holy Spirit has given a vision, a revelation of what's going to happen, and the people have interpreted it badly. Right? There's a message of what's going to happen to Paul when he goes to Jerusalem, and then there's the people who care about Paul saying, Well, then don't go. That's what's going to happen to you. Don't go there, Paul. Someone else can take this offering. It makes sense that that probably what's happened in Tyre as well, right? When they were urging him through the Spirit, they probably had this vision and they interpreted it that way. And it only makes sense, right? Of course they would have that reaction. If your friend in school tells you the school bully is waiting for you after school by the flagpole, you go home a different way, right? That's, That's normal. But that's not how Paul reacts here. Look at verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul Paul says, friends, stop it. You're breaking my heart. You're weakening my resolve. I have to go to Jerusalem. It's not news to me that I'm going to suffer there, that I'm going to get arrested and face hardship. I've known that all along. The Holy Spirit told me that a while ago. But he also told me I I need to go there, and so I'm going to go even though I know I'm going to be arrested, even though I may even die there, even if I do, I'm ready. Because Paul has the right perspective on suffering. He knows that it's God's will for him to suffer, and so he's ready. 
And his confidence wins over his companions. So they too trust God's will. Look at verse 14. And since they would, he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. You know, as we said before, our, our default is to try to avoid suffering, isn't it? We're like the people urging Paul not to go in this story. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. It makes sense. It's weird to try and get suffering all the time. You don't want that. We don't have to go looking for trouble. You know, Paul himself, he's not above sneaking out of a city through a basket over the wall, right? When he knows his life is in danger. Or think about Philip who fled Jerusalem because Paul was persecuting him. And he had a wonderful ministry elsewhere, right? That was how God spread the gospel outside of Jerusalem at the beginning of Acts. Even Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, to 23, you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. And there's nothing wrong with trying to avoid suffering. But we can take a healthy aversion to suffering too far. If it causes us to be unfaithful to God, to not trust him, then we're sinning, right? It's very clear in this case, Paul's been told by God what to do and even what to expect. And he's ready to place himself in God's hands and just obey, right? Back again with those Ephesians elders in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 20, after he tells them that he's going to Jerusalem, in verse 24, he says this, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So here's the question facing us in this passage. Are you ready to suffer if and when it's God's will for you? It's, it's hard to be a Christian and stand with Jesus in Toronto today. We're all hyper aware of that in June, aren't we? You're not going to get killed or go to jail for it at this point, but you definitely could lose your job or at least have to go through some sort of sensitivity training. Now, we don't need to go looking for a fight, right? Don't go posting videos about Target on, on Facebook. But where does your conscience tell you that you're being unfaithful to God? Where has the Holy Spirit prompted you to share your faith and you've ignored him because you care more about corporate policy than about what God wants? Where are you quenching the Spirit and showing that you fear the people in your lives more than you love Jesus? And that this idea of suffering goes even, even beyond suffering because you're trying to share your faith or you won't celebrate sin. There are lots of ways we suffer beyond that. Are you willing and ready to trust God if he brings you through that? And, and again, I know your church has been through a season that's been tough. and you've, you've gone through some of these things. Are you ready to trust God if you find that lump? You get that call. Right? These are big questions and I, I don't in any way want to take them lightly or be flippant about them. But, but hear this, if you belong to Christ, you've been called to a hope that goes beyond the joys and the sorrows of this life. And that should affect the way that you live. It should even affect the way that you grieve when you suffer. Do you know that part of the reason Christianity spread so early in the early days is because Christians had an, a reputation of loving Jesus and others more than they loved their own lives. Right? There are several occasions in the early Roman Empire when Christianity was new where plagues swept across the Roman Empire. And people locked themselves in their houses or if they were rich enough, they moved out of the cities to the country to be away from everybody else. But Christians stuck around and they ventured out of their homes to try and help the sick and the dying. 
And as they did, some of them got sick and they died. But then they were with their Savior who said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Right, I don't need to draw the line for you between that and us, do I? Right, this, I'm not, I'm not going to speak badly about any protocols or you know, we, our church followed all the rules too during the pandemic. But so many Christians just were just as afraid as everybody else, forgetting the hope that we had. So many Christians just took it as an opportunity to fight for their rights, to make a big scene rather than just showing Christ's love to the world. How does your hope in Christ affect the way you approach suffering? If it's God's will that you and I will suffer, which it will be at times, what are you going to do? We need to change our perspective on suffering and be ready to suffer when God calls us to it and be faithful to him. But that's easier said than done. It's a lot easier to make you feel guilty about it than it is for us to actually change, isn't it? So how does that happen? It only happens by knowing the purpose of suffering, right? We've seen the perspective that needs to be we need to be ready for suffering. But now we're going to see the purpose of suffering. The purpose of suffering is simply this, the glory of Jesus. We suffer to bring glory to our Lord. It's the glory of Jesus. So look again at verse 13. Look again at what Paul says to the people who are trying to persuade him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He tells them, stop, I'm, I'm ready to even die if that's what God wants. But that last phrase in there is what's key, right? Paul's not a defeatist. I'm just, I, I just resign. I'm fatalistic about it. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I don't care anymore. He's ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus, right? Back in Acts chapter 20, again, verse 24, let me read that for you again. He says to the Ephesian elders, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is why we suffer, for the glory of Jesus. It's what makes it worth it for Paul, it's what makes it worth it for us. Paul knows the value of Jesus, and he's willing to give up his life for his name. The truth is, every single one of us is willing to suffer for the right cause, right? We suffer for our careers, we suffer for success, we suffer for fitness, we suffer for survival if we're in that situation, we suffer to give birth, well I haven't, but my wife did. And every single one of us is even willing to die for the right cause, right? I've never met a parent, even an unattentive, disinterested parent, who wouldn't throw themselves in front of a bus if they saw that their kid was in trouble. Do you know what our problem is? Our problem is that we have such an anemic, short-sighted view of who Jesus is, right? We don't know his value. I mean, we know it in our heads, but we don't really know it. We haven't experienced it. We haven't felt it. We haven't felt the weight of his glory and the depth of his love. We haven't, we lack the understanding of his incomparable worth. We're unmoved by his majesty. We aren't awed as we should be by his wisdom. We take his kindness for granted, we just don't care that his righteousness is like the highest mountains and his justice is like the ocean depth. We don't think about the fact that while we were dead in our transgressions and sins and deserving of God's wrath, God loved us 
And because of his great love for us, he saved us. He who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ Jesus. He, he rescued us. He saved us by grace through faith. And that salvation, that grace, even that faith didn't come from ourselves. They aren't a result of our goodness or our efforts. We worked our finger to the bones and did no good, we sang earlier. They're the gift of God to us. So we have no room to boast. Do you know what our greatest need is in this life? Paul prays for it, for the Ephesians, or the Christians in his day, in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. In chapter 3, verse 17, he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know the love that surpasses knowledge. I love that verse. I don't know how you do that. To know love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's our greatest need. We need to know God. To know the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge. We need the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation to help us to know God better and show us this love. Lord, please help us. So let me use my remaining time. If I have remaining time, I'm maybe going over, but too bad. Just to walk you through Ephesians 1 to 3 real quick. Remind you of the worth and value of our God. Right? If you're a Christian, it's because the Father chose you before the creation of the world, not just to believe but so that one day you would stand before him holy and blameless without a stain or spot of sin on you. That is your destiny that he gave you before time began. Because God loves you, your destiny that has always been established is that through Jesus, you would be adopted into God's family. What Jesus has by nature, being the son of God, he shared with you so that we could be God's children by adoption. Why did he do that for us? Not because you deserve it or I deserve it. We're vile sinners who deserve God's just punishment. He did it just because it was his pleasure. Because he wanted to. Because he loves us. Because he wanted to pour out his grace on us in Jesus. And so through Jesus, we've been redeemed and forgiven from our sins. Jesus, who is God himself, eternal, divine, perfect, one with his father throughout all of eternity, left his father's side and became one of us. Right? We took communion and talked about the body and blood of our Lord. He didn't have those for all of eternity, body and blood. He took those for us so that he could share them, shed them, his blood for us and let his flesh be torn for us. The creator became his creation. The God who had never suffered, suffered for us. The immortal God died. Think about those phrases. God shed his blood for us because he had chosen us to be his church. He gave us grace without limit so that we could be his. He spared no expense for you because he wasn't willing to let you go. We can suffer and even die for Jesus because he did it for us first. Our suffering doesn't mean he doesn't love us 
because he's proven his love by suffering much worse so that we could be his. Now, friends, I don't know most of you here, but there may be some of you here that aren't a Christian. Maybe you're visiting with friends. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life and you haven't really understood this grace. You haven't really understood the value of Jesus and what he's done. If that's you and you're starting to realize this, I want to urge you today, turn to Christ. God loves you. And he's more worthy of your love than any of us will ever know. If you if you'll just recognize his authority over your life, you recognize that you're a sinner who deserves nothing good from him. And that you can't fix yourself. And as a result, if you just throw yourself at his mercy, you will find him there ready to receive you with open arms as one of his adopted children. You, you'll find that you're one whom he has loved and chosen before the world began. This offer, it's open to you. If you'll just see the worth of Jesus and come. You know, for all who, 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 do, who do come to him, he reveals a great mystery. He makes known to us the depths of his wisdom and understanding. That his, this beautiful and broken world, it's not random, it's not meaningless. The suffering has a purpose. There's a plan, a great plan. It's, it's God's plan. That plan is constantly being worked out in our lives. A plan that reached its climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus and will be finally complete when God says the time is right and Jesus returns. This plan is to bring a conclusion to creation in, in Jesus, who is the ruler and redeemer and judge of this world, who will fix all that's broken, heal all that's sick, judge all that is wicked. Jesus himself is the meaning of all things. Everything finds its fullness and meaning in him. Though we may not understand our suffering when we go through it, we can be confident that it has purpose in Jesus and that Jesus will be glorified in it. This is the mystery that the world doesn't understand but that God has shown us. And finally, God has shown this mystery to us by telling us the good news of salvation through Jesus. Listen, Jesus didn't just leave it up to us to decide whether or not we were going to believe and respond because in our sin, we never would have. Rather, he sent his Holy Spirit, the spirit of revelation, who opened our eyes so that we could see God for who he is. He strengthened us in our inner being so that Christ could dwell in our hearts through faith. Because we are spiritually dead, we would have rejected Jesus as foolish. But now through the spirit, we've been made alive. We can see the true value of Jesus. So now we have the Spirit of God permanently living in us, changing us, strengthening us, revealing God's greatness to us, guaranteeing our destiny and our inheritance as God's children. So when we suffer, we don't do it alone. Because God is in us and with us. He's strengthening us. He's guiding us. He's leading us. God the Holy Spirit is praying to the Father for us. Listen, do you get it? We who were once far off from God and excluded from his covenants of promise have been brought near by Jesus so that through him, whoever we are, we have access to the Father by the one Holy Spirit. In Jesus and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't let your hearts be blunted to the all-surpassing worth of Jesus. Grasp by God's grace just how high and long and wide and deep this love is. And let your heart 
and your life be filled with all the fullness of God. Let the love and the greatness of God invade your heart and drive out your fear and drive out your apathy and drive out your desire to sin. Then you'll be ready to say with Paul, I'm ready to suffer, even to die for the name of Jesus. Whatever he calls me to, I'm ready to face for the glory of his name. Wherever he leads me, I'm ready to follow for the glory of his name. Would you pray with me? Father, these are big statements from your word. Suffering is hard and we we don't want to do it. But we know that you love us. We know that the glory of Jesus is the greatest cause that we could live and die for. Help us to remember this, to not get so caught up in the things of this world, our comforts and our, our pleasures that we forget that following Jesus means taking up our cross. And that after the cross comes glory. That is the hope that we have. Help us to follow Christ as he followed, or sorry, follow Paul as he followed Christ in his example. Help us our lives to look more like Jesus, Holy Spirit, as you work in us to change us. We pray, Lord, that you be glorified in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.